Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Ivan Leochko. Ivan is the founder and CEO of Seattle-based Phase Genomics. He is originally from Kyiv, Ukraine. He came with his family to the U.S. at the age of 11, around the time of the fall of the old Soviet Union. When Russia invaded Ukraine back in February, he spoke up and mobilized his team and members of the biotech community to stand up with the people of Ukraine. He still has some family there. I must admit, I didn't know anything about phase genomics prior to that moment. But the company is in my hometown of Seattle. It grew out of work at the University of Washington Department of Genome Sciences, one of the world-leading centers for this field of biology. Turns out that Phase Genomics is doing some fascinating work with helping scientists assemble difficult-to-put-together genomes and metagenomes. That's an extra tricky form of assembly of the DNA sequence that comes when you have a whole bunch of microorganisms that coexist in the messiness of life that you might find in something like a slab of dirt. One interesting application is now being supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Phage is being tasked with creating a repository of phage-bacteria interactions, a so-called interactome, that could be used to help identify precise phage therapies that could then fend off scourges from drug-resistant bacteria. Talking with Ivan reminds me of the magic that comes when the right person lands in the right place at the right time. He and I come from very different backgrounds, but we both appreciate what's special about Seattle as a community and the long tradition of the United States as a leader in research and entrepreneurship. He is an immigrant who has come here and had some success and might have a bit more, partly because of his own skills and initiative but also in part because of the surrounding community, research culture, and business traditions. Now, before we get started, a word from the sponsor of The Long Run. Calgary is home to more than 120 life sciences companies, from emerging startups to established firms. With this critical mass of research, technical talent, and expertise, the city is an active hub for life sciences innovation. Technologies homegrown in Calgary are changing the face of healthcare. Cyantra is revolutionizing breast cancer detection using artificial intelligence-derived algorithms. Nanotest is harnessing the power of nanotechnology to tackle chronic wounds and skin conditions. And this is only the beginning. Calgary's life sciences sector is projected to spend $428 million on digital transformation by 2024. If you're a bright mind or bright company solving global health challenges, Calgary is the place for you. Take a closer look at why at calgarylifesciences.com and Thermo Fisher Scientific. What does going a step beyond mean? For Gideon, a young boy fighting leukemia, it meant getting a second shot at life. Through an innovative new treatment called CAR-T cell therapy, Thermo Fisher Scientific supported its customers and the healthcare community to help Gideon reach full remission. Today, he is a healthy, happy 11-year-old boy playing basketball and enjoying time with his family thanks to customers going a step beyond every single day to make a difference in the world. To watch Gideon's story, visit www.thermalfisher.com forward slash Gideon. Now please join me and Ivan on the long run. Ivan Leachko, welcome to the long run. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for having me. So I got to say, this is the first time I've recorded the long run in person at someone's office in quite some time. So it's a pleasure to be here at Phase Genomics in Seattle. Yeah, no, it's really good to be able to uh, do these things in person again. And I also um, am really happy to hear from you about um, your experience as a Ukrainian immigrant to the U.S. and your entrepreneurial journey. Um, I uh, I got to admit, I first became aware of you after um, the unfortunate invasion back in February and saw that you had mobilized a section of your company and the biotech community to um, to stand up against that uh, particular form of injustice that that hit close to home. Um, So I want to ask you a little bit about that, but um, thank you for, for doing that. 
Sure. Happy to. I mean, let me give you a little bit of my background. So I, um, my family and I immigrated from, uh, from Ukraine, which was back then the USSR when we moved in 1990. So we immigrated to the US when I was 11 years old. 1990. Uh, so this was right around the, the end. Yeah, it was right around when there was this weird period where nobody know, knew what was going on and sort of everything was kind of falling apart. Um, and some, you know, at some point there were separate countries or they weren't. There, were that, there was that like weird union thing they had for a while um, after the USSR fell apart. And so that's when we kind of... That's so when you're, we, you were 11 years old. <clears throat> um, what did your mom and dad do for a living at that time? Uh, well, so, <laughs> so my, uh, my father is a college professor and, uh, he, we actually moved here with my stepdad. So, um, he, he cut hair. My mom did, you know, like immigrants, you do everything, um, because, you know, she had a college education and, um, but it was sort of, uh, once you once you move, you know, once you lose the like fluency in a language, it's hard to kind of stay in the same uh, professional field. So she kind of we kind of did whatever we needed to do. So uh, we sold stuff. We you know had a bunch of jobs here and there. So uh, this was after coming to yeah after coming to the U.S. Okay, well, can you say a little bit more about the family? So you had a stepdad and a mom, and um, do you have siblings? Yep, I had a little brother who came with us. He was two years old at the time. Um, and I have since had had some siblings here that were born in the U.S. So yeah, but but in general, my, most of my family is still back in Ukraine. Okay. Now, what part of Ukraine? Kiev, Kiev, the capital. That's where we've always lived in in that area. Okay. Okay. So why? Um, what what was the scene like when, in 1990 when your family made that big decision? Like, um, was it urgent to? Like try to get to the United States, or what was the thought process? Yeah, you know, I mean, I was a kid, right? So I wasn't, uh, I wasn't necessarily as cognizant of all the stuff. I didn't necessarily understand everything that was going on. Um, things were definitely kind of rushed and chaotic, but it was, uh, you know, immigrating out of the Soviet Union was an interesting thing because it was so difficult to do. It was basically impossible to do, almost impossible to do in those days. And so um, once things started falling apart, people were trying, you know, people would, would go places, but it was kind of unusual. And so it was always chaotic. It was always nuanced. It was always urgent. Um, you basic, people basically slipped out. Like it was, it wasn't, uh, I think, you know, if I were, like as an American to say, let's say I want to immigrate to Canada, I would just go and immigrate. You know, it wouldn't be difficult. But um, but immigrating from where we were was always such a unusual thing because, you know, this was right after the Iron Curtain. You know, like there was all that. It was difficult to immigrate out of the old Soviet uh, states. So, and of course, you know, like... Anywhere, much less right. America. Right, right. And in addition to just kind of the general difficulty for anyone to immigrate to the U.S. <laughs> to get throughout, you know, the immigration sort of uh, system and all that stuff. But why, um, why come all the way to America? What was uh, that that about? Well, I mean, um, it is very much seen as the promised land. Um, at least back, you know, back then it was. I mean, I'm sure it still very much is. Um, it has to do, you know, with all the things that the immigrants come here for: financial freedom you know, peace, peace and quiet, stability, um, both economic and sort of other things. A land with rule of law. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, freedom of speech, come, you know, free enterprise. Immigration is difficult, uh, especially, you know, the like older folks who are established in their existing society. For them, immigration is really difficult. It's easier for the young people because we get to like learn and grow up and stuff like that. But, but they do it mostly for the kids. Usually when, when people immigrate, they undertake a huge amount of risk and, uh, you know, and they have to toss their life around and, you know, they, they start, they have to throw away basically everything they had in the old country and start again. And they do it in general for the, for the kids, for the next generation. And you said you were 11 years old. Um, did you speak English at the time or no? We actually, yes. Yeah. So we actually took English from first grade in school. So, I mean, I spoke like elementary school English. You know, if you, if you had, if you, if you were to take Spanish for three years in school, you would, you know, like that, that was basically my, my, um, 
my level of English. But we picked that up here because especially when you're a kid, you know, you're watching TV all the time. You're talking to all these kids at school. And so we picked up language pretty quick. But you also spoke Ukrainian and Russian as well? So, yeah. So we, we did three languages in my school, at least. Uh, we did Russian, Ukrainian, and English since first grade. So, yeah. So Russian and Ukrainian were kind of like, in those days, sort of taught equivalently. So they were we spoke both very fluently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So where did you come in the U.S.? Uh, like most immigrants, we came through New York. Mm-hmm. And then we lived in Philadelphia for a long time. And then I went to college in Boston after that. So you said earlier that, you know, mom did some odd jobs and, and things. I mean, just like putting food on the table, paying the rent, making ends yeah, meet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just, you know, she was kind of like a homemaker, but also with a, uh, you know, but also worked, right? So it's sort of common in that culture to kind of, uh, you know, it's a little more traditional, right? Moms tend to stay home with the kids, but yeah. also if they have college educations, they may also get a job, you know, whatever. Like they'll also work, right? You do, you know, you kind of do what you need to do. Sure. So kid growing up, um, New Jersey, Philly area, um, uh, what kind of schools did you attend? Always public schools. Um, I don't know if you want <laughs> Do yeah. You name. <laughs> I went to, uh, so I went to uh, middle school, was called Wilson, Woodrow Wilson Middle School in Philly. And uh, and for high school, I went to uh, Central, Central High School in Philadelphia. And what kind of student were you? I was a good student. I came from a family of professors and, you know, <laughs> so I was, I was pretty good. They expected you to do well. Yeah, you kind of had, uh, yeah, like the dragon parents uh, <laughs> situation. <laughs> Uh, was science one of your favorite subjects or other things? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm a little bit weird, I think, because I, so I've, I've always only wanted to do one thing as a career. Like I wanted to be basically a biologist since I was like a little kid. Um, you know, I was always interested in genetics, especially, of course, you know, had I not immigrated to the U.S., chances of that career working out would have been much slimmer. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I've always wanted to do science. That was always my thing. I started working in, in bio labs and research labs, uh, when I was 16 years old. Um, I was still in high school and I won this little summer fellowship kind of program and that got me in the lab at UPenn in Philly, um, for the first time. And I just kind of kept going back and I just kept kind of they kept hiring me for like the summer because I was cute and I wanted to do science. And, and so they kept bringing me back. <laughs> so this was, I guess, mid nineties by this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kinds of things did you do or were you exposed to in the lab? You know, we did a bunch of stuff. I mean, I learned just, I kind of, I started with just like the super basic stuff, like from washing dishes to like extracting DNA from different bacteria and stuff like that, just kind of like lower end tasks. And little by little, they entrusted me to do more complicated things and uh, run machinery. And then we did a bunch of mouse work and tissue culture, which is when you grow cells and little petri dishes, um, you know, that kind of stuff. And so, so that was sort of during my, um, high school days and I went to college and I started doing independent research in the lab. I was working in the immunologist's lab. Um, You know, I was there for the summers and kind of during the school year, sort of uh, in the evenings and things like that. Um, You know, just kept doing that. And then, um, and then when I graduated, I went to Cornell for grad school where I worked in a, um, in a lab studying DNA replication, how DNA copies itself inside of cells and, uh, and how it's regulated chromatin, which is how, how DNA packages up inside cells and how it turns on and off genes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So this would have been, um, post genome project by this point where were you thinking like nucleic acids, genomics, this is like the specialty for you early on. Yeah, we were doing a lot of genetics. I was doing, there's sort of, there's genetics and there's genomics. And uh, genomics is sort of the the global equivalent of genetics, right? Genetics looks at like, what does a gene do? What do these genes do? Genomics is like looking at all the genes in your genome at the same time. So genomics is like genetics at scale, genetics plus computer science, sort of. And so... Um, and so I started doing genomics after I, so I, back then I was kind of a, you know, classically trained molecular geneticists. We worked primarily on microbes on yeast specifically. Yeast is where like 
a lot of the yeast is like the crucible of molecular biology. A lot of the stuff is discovered in yeast, uh, just because it's easy to work with, but uh -huh. it's still a eukaryote like you and me. Fast dividing, so, you get results yeah, quickly. It's fast, you know, like we joke around because like, you know, CRISPR is so hot these days, but the yeast people basically have had that access to that kind of technology forever. <laughs> so we had CRISPR before there was CRISPR. But so, so yeah, so I did a lot of tinkering, a lot of sort of tech development, um, you know, and then when I moved uh, and after I graduated, I moved to Seattle for my postdoc and I was working in my triadunums lab at the University of Genome, I'm uh, oh, sorry, the Department of Genome Sciences at UW. Um, and we were doing sort of more high throughput genomics, that kind of stuff. What drew you out to the University of Washington? Washington. Well, um, I uh, well, a couple of reasons. One is the I knew the professor whose lab I was going to work in. I knew her from before because we worked together uh, on certain other things. And so when I heard that she was going out and starting her own lab, she had been at Cornell. No, but we collaborated with. She was at Princeton before. Okay, we, but we collaborated on some projects. Just you know, we knew each other, and then uh, you know, got along well. And I she started uh, her own lab, and I said, "Hey, can I be your first postdoc?" <laughs> and uh, kind of moved out here. I also wanted to live here because it was. Um, I don't know. You know, Pacific Northwest tends to be in a little bit of the fog of war when you're in that area. For me, at least it was like you kind of know that Seattle exists and it's a cool place, but you kind of like, you know, you don't necessarily think you're ever going to move there <laughs> if you live in New York or something like that. I don't know why that was just my at least that was the case for me. Um, and I've been here once for a conference and I was like, hey, when else am I going to have a chance to do this kind of thing? So it was a little bit adventure. It was a little bit that I just wanted to work with my Treya. Um, and uh, and so that's sort of what drew me out here. I think Seattle has um, this uh, this long history. It's being it's far away from yeah. New York and Boston, right. like geographically, but also like psychologically. It's like the big trees and the ocean, and you can yeah. kind of get away from a lot of those networks and just do your own thing. And there, you've seen this with entrepreneurs in lots of different industries yeah. pursue these grand and creative ideas here and, and other parts of the West Coast. Oh, yes, totally. It's such, a, it's, it's such a sort of magnificent place. And it is, you know, yeah, like if you're in New York, you can, you know, people who have moved to Chicago, who have moved to Florida, who have moved to California, but you don't necessarily have a lot of friends who moved to Seattle. I mean, the, the, you know, again, everybody's experience is different, but it's quirky. It's, it's a little bit of a quirky secret <laughs> hiding spot. And, uh, and it's so amazing. It's, you know, so anyway, so I really wanted to live here, um, at least for a while. Um, and also, you know, I wanted to work in this lab. And so, and UW genome sciences, this would have been mid two thousands. I mean, it well, yeah. when you came out, we, right. I came here in Oh nine. Oh nine. So this place yeah. well established mm -hmm. as one of yeah. the top handful of genomic research centers in the country, if not the world, yeah. um, Everybody knows about the Broad, right, but right, you, right. You, you dub genome sciences is right in there. It's right up there. People don't realize it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's because <laughs> I think it's because its name has a state name in it, so people kind of lump it with just like, oh, it's just another state school. <laughs> There's lots of Washingtons out there too, but it's like really high up there. It's up there above many of the Ivies um, in in just quality and reputation. So yeah. Yeah, so you come out here, and what were you charged with doing as the first uh, postdoc? Just uh, lots of cool science, you know, nothing that any other postdoc wouldn't be charged with. Uh, just, you know, a bunch of projects and, and, you know, sort of publishing papers, doing experiments, that kind of that stuff. In yeast? And were you developing technology as well? Yeah, so so it was, it was still a yeast lab. Um, we had some collaborations in some other uh, systems, but in general, yeah, it's, it's less about you know, it's not really about the yeast. It's about the technology. Yeast is like the tool that you use to develop things. Mm -hmm. But that's something that this department's really good at. They're super good at developing cutting-edge new technology in the genetics and genomic space. And so that's kind of what we did. We just tinkered a lot. We did. We worked a lot on um, this thing called experimental evolution, where you kind of take microbes like yeast and you grow them under different uh, selective, selective pressures and different conditions, and you see how they change their genomes around, right, and kind of try to learn biology. So it's sort of a combination of technology development and understanding how genetics affects biology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, the actual instruments of the time were, of course, bigger and clunkier and more expensive. And, you know, the, the early editions of Illumina and, and PacBio um, were around. Yep. You had access to those mm -hmm. uh, yes, tools. Yeah. Well, and the software that goes along those things. That's the other thing that uh, I think this department here, the UW Genome Sciences Department, is really good at, is that it doesn't. It's not just about the machines. A lot of it, you know, you need to teach people how to, you know, how to write the like 
how to write code, how to write the analytics. And a lot of biologists don't do that or they, they want to, but it's hard. You know, if you spend, I spent my, almost, at that point, I spent my entire career pipetting things, doing wet lab experiments in the lab, right? Picking cells, doing microscope work, that kind of stuff. But I've never written code before. You know, my extent of computational sophistication was like doing standard deviations in Microsoft Excel. Like that's all I knew how to do. (laughs) But by the end, you know, I was writing code and I had my own little programs and stuff. And so, so I think one of the cool things about this particular department is that it really teaches people, um, technology, not just from a kind of like robots and machines sense, but also how to use computers, how to use computational biology. And that's becoming much more important these days. Like, you can't do any genomics without computational tools. Right? And that was important partly because there was a bottleneck there, right? I mean, you could take a sample, run it through the machine, and but then yeah. you need to do an assembly. And, you know, it needs to line up at all the, 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 yeah. the right contig ends. And you need to then analyze the data and maybe even compare it with other similar samples, yeah. right? I mean, and all that stuff was just piling up in people's totally because hard you drives. Know, I, I think as the history of biology is most most of you know biology people think about doing kind of wet lab experiments right they think about being in the lab and pipetting things most biologists are not computational and they don't have that training so bioinformaticians in most departments are pretty rare um, and that's not the case necessarily here but this is a little bit of an out, outlier and so yeah so people are great at generating data and doing experiments but they tend to, um, on the global scale, like they t- there tend not tend not to be that much bioinformatics skill. It's it, it's changing, and more and more people are getting into that space. Were you self taught on this, or did you get some <laughs> some help from peers or advisors? Always, always both, always both. You you know, um, took some classes, but all you know, ninety percent of it is is just you know, banging it out, like trial and error, learning it yourself, making horrible mistakes, doing terrible, stupid things. Then somebody teaches you how to do it better, you know, so asking friends, you know, Googling stuff. So, well, now, um, Phil Green was there at the time and had famously developed Fred and Frapp, those early software yeah. programs. You use those? I haven't used them myself, but I'm definitely, I, I know about them, of course. Okay, so what kind of programs did you want to write and to do what? Oh, my my things were all like, because we did a lot of like custom, you, you know, there's a lot of like little custom scripts. I wouldn't even call my, what I wrote programs because now I work with real programmers and I would be ashamed to even say what I, I did like very like low grade, like scripting to kind of accomplish the things that I needed to accomplish for my particular experiments. But it had to do, usually it had to do with um, analyzing sequencing data, next generation sequencing data that was, pro, you know, an experiment that wasn't like, um, a typical one like you couldn't just plug it into a program you had to like change something around you had to count something a different way so you had to like write your own little script so i'm by no means like a sophisticated coder or anything like that but i just a little bit i could do a little bit (laughs) okay so uh but there was that um that culture that said you know if you get stuck at some point like figure out how to develop a technology or a tool to you know plow through it absolutely and there were lots of resources for me to go and help you know like you go and you ask people we knew who the people were they're all friendly they're helpful um you know a lot of people would sort of support you and kind of teach you where you need to go but yeah okay so um you you're a postdoc and then then what did you do after that you're you're on staff or what i was a postdoc yeah i mean i was a <laughs> so i wanted to do science my whole life and i never really wanted to do anything else so yeah so i was a postdoc for long enough that they had to change my title to staff because you're only allowed to be a postdoc for so long so uh so technically i was staff but i was really just a postdoc um and uh and yeah and then you know we as we we did we collaborated with lots of folks and then um at some point we stumbled upon a technology that we thought was really cool i i saw a presentation by a student in the department and kind of his idea sparked my idea and we started working together and then that was sort of the the um the start of what later became this company phase genomics but now you did you also take some classes in the business school like you consciously decided that you wanted to learn more about business too yeah yeah because so the way what happened was we um you know sort of in a collaborative fashion we came up with a technology that was really powerful and it really solved like huge problems in the in the sort of genome sequencing space um 
And um, and we started collaborating with lots of outside labs. Um, but when you're in, a, in an academic setting, you know, you're a little bit limited for what you can do. Like you can't kind of always just step out and do crazy side projects. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. And uh, And it became clear that this technology really needed to be spun out. It needed to be a commercial tool because it was uh, it was very powerful. But like, if I was the only person who knew how to do it, you know what I mean? Like, there, the, there's a tipping point. Like, yeah. there's there's like doing favors for your fellow academics, where like you're processing, you know, a couple dozen samples, and that's just friendly collaboration. But if there's 200 of them piled up in the fridge, and yeah. you know, more and more coming in, at some point, yeah. this needs to become well, a company. And, you know, we had a like. All these people were sequencing genomes for different organisms, plants, for animals, for fungi, and there was a there's a very specific need that this technology that we came up with solved. And you know, if if it was just me doing it in an academic lab, there's only so many you can do. Okay, right? so, so so tell me about the, about this it. technology. What what did it do? Sure. So it's like if you think about you know when you're trying to assemble a genome, when you're trying to seek when you're sequencing a genome, you're trying to read like imagine you have um, like a book and it's like a huge humongous book, but um, when you when you read it, what if you could only read it in random like three word chunks? Right. Like, here's a book and like you can read it, but you can only read three words at a time and it'll be like in a random place. It's been through a shredder and it's it's in the bottom of the trash can. You need to pick it back up and put it all back together to a book that you can read. Exactly. And so so that's the idea is that the way sequencing works is it sequence it reads pieces of DNA, but only little short pieces. And then you have to try to recreate the super long like sequence out of little short pieces. And you run into all sorts of problems, right? Like what happens when you have the same sequence repeated over and over and over and over, right? Uh, trying to kind of overlap these little pieces and stitch it together doesn't work when you have repeats. Happens often yeah. with cancer. Mm-hmm. Cancer is huge, right? Sometimes sometimes pieces of DNA will rearrange. They will flip around or they will jump from one chromosome to another. They will switch places, um, all this kind of stuff. So so, it's, so essentially what you end up getting is you end up getting uh, not like your, your little like three word chunks will stitch together into like sentences or paragraphs or something like that but you're still never going to get like a page you're never going to get a chapter right and then um, what happens if you have like a blank page in between two chapters like how do you know <laughs> like what goes on which side right so and so what our technology did was it it basically allowed you to go from that to kind of putting together those pieces all into like the book so basically it's called scaffolding scaffolding is when you take pieces of sequence these uh, genome sequence pieces called contigs and you kind of put them in order and you kind of uh, you you, st- you put you figure out which pieces belong to the same chromosome and how they're all ordered with each other sort of which order and how they're oriented and did you start yeah. with the short read technology from illumina yeah yeah i mean we could have worked with everybody and um so so yeah so our technology you is a is a special trick it's a special way uh, to prepare illumina sequencing in the way that it tells you which parts of the genome are close together in three-dimensional space. So which part of the genome are close together and which parts are far away. And so it's sort of like, um, uh, I'm going to mix metaphors for a second, if you don't mind. I'm going to switch to a different metaphor. Let's call it a jigsaw puzzle now. It's not a book anymore. It's a jigsaw puzzle. Let's say you have a jigsaw puzzle and you don't know what it's supposed to look like. You just have a bunch of pieces. But what if you knew which the physical distance between every pair of pieces. Like what if you knew, all you know is you have a bunch of pieces and I know which ones are right next to each other, right? Um, You could then piece them all, put them all together in such a way as that, like put the puzzle in a way that makes sense with that information. And then you would have your picture. And so that's basically what our technology did was normal sequencing would create these pieces. It would create the jigsaw puzzle pieces. And our technology would tell you which pieces were how far away from each other. And then you use computers to basically assemble that puzzle together. And that's how you got full genomes. And so, and in the end, you get fewer of these misalignments or inaccuracies like that. You just, it, yeah, you reconstruct the whole thing, right? Normally you just can't, you have pieces and you say, I don't know where they go, but now you have chromosomes. Now you have the whole genomes are reconstructed, laid out how it's supposed to be. So how much more accurate would you say the end result of one of these assemblies 
was from what you were were doing? Well, I'm not sure accuracy may not be the right term because we weren't changing the actual sequences, right? There was just those pieces were still there. We were just kind of arranging them. But we went from, you know, we would increase what we would call contiguity, which is how long your DNA kind of sequences are by orders of magnitude. Sometimes it would be like a you know a thousand times longer than the pieces. But again, all we were doing was we're putting them together into a long, we were taking short pieces and turning them into a long thing, right? And so it's, and so that, but that's part of constructing the genome. And before that, you couldn't do it. Um, it was very, very hard. It was possible. But it was super, super hard, and our method made it pretty easy. And so it was able, we were able to get these what, what are called gold-quality genomes, which is when you have the genome is laid out into full end-to-end chromosomes instead of like 100,000 pieces. Calgary is home to more than 120 life sciences companies, from emerging startups to established firms. With this critical mass of research, technical talent, and expertise, the city is an active hub for life sciences innovation. Technologies homegrown in Calgary are changing the face of healthcare. Cyantra is revolutionizing breast cancer detection using artificial intelligence-derived algorithms. Nanotest is harnessing the power of nanotechnology to tackle chronic wounds and skin conditions. And this is only the beginning. Calgary's life sciences sector is projected to spend $428 million on digital transformation by 2024. If you're a bright mind or bright company solving global health challenges, Calgary is the place for you. Take a closer look at why at calgarylifesciences.com. And when Gideon's leukemia returned, his family had lost all hope. But then his doctor offered them CAR T-cell therapy, an experimental treatment that reprograms a patient's T-cells to attack cancer cells. In their own words, the day they were offered CAR T-cell therapy was a day of hope. Thermal Fisher Scientific is dedicated to staying a step ahead of the science so that its customers can continue to go a step beyond every single day. To watch how Gideon was given another shot at life, visit www.thermalfisher.com forward slash Gideon. When did this dawn on you or others that maybe this could be the basis for a company? Well, um, there were a couple of things. So, so you know, we talked about this uh, with our collaborator. So, um, the the student who actually originally came up with this idea was Josh Burton. His he was a graduate student in Jason Dury's lab, who is um, a professor at Genome Sciences, and um, and so we we started doing these projects. The the I, I long thought about commercializing it because I was like, okay, we we have to do this. Like a lot of people can benefit from this. We need to make this easy and so that others can do Like it's not just me kind of like we're, you know, me and Josh, like we're doing all these things ourselves. And uh, and then one funny thing is so we had um, we had scientists show up from who heard about this technology uh, at a conference or something from the Driscoll's Berry Company. And so they wanted to assemble a bunch of genomes and uh, and they kind of became our some of our first clients. Berry. plant so, genomics, so, and, and these are notoriously long yeah, and complex genomes. They are, especially like those strawberries and things. They're crazy. They have many, many copies of the same genome. They'll have six copies of the same genome and stuff like that. So they're immensely like. Imagine like instead of a jigsaw puzzle, you have six almost identical jigsaw puzzles, and you have to put them together, right? Um, like in one. So so yeah. So but they basically were potentially that that was a little bit of a. Um, um, of like a straw that broke the camel's back on the commercialization decision. I was like, look, now people are literally offering to pay us money to do this. And then, you know, and I went to to Jay and to Maitreya and I said, let's like, I don't know how to start companies, uh, but now, I'll learn. Now, what did they want, the Berry Company, what did they want all this genomic information for? Was this to help them with like crossbreeding and, and like um, uh, drug yeah. resistance or other pr- traits they might? Probably. I mean, I don't know specifically their needs and I'm, I'm, probably sure i would be able to tell you anyway but if i knew but um but but most likely it's things like what you mentioned that that's usually what you want genetics for okay okay improving them or studying them or trying to you know uh make better strains or something along those lines so you come to jay and and josh burt and others and they're like yeah let's let's do it yeah i i i said yeah i mean i think i was really into it and um and 
you know, they didn't stand in the way. They said, sure, we'll help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I went and I started taking classes and stuff. And I went through UW's uh, uh, tech transfer office has, has this, had all these, you know, startup programs and that kind of thing. And so kind of started the ball rolling that way. So how'd you get, uh, how'd you get started? Well, I, the start was, you know, you talk to the tech transfer office and I think I talk to a lot of startup founders nowadays and like, who is the first contact? You know, we run this thing called Genome Startup Day to kind of encourage uh, sort of brand new sort of academics who are on the cusp to kind of educate them a little bit um, about the sort of commercialization. And the first contact is almost always your tech transfer office, right? Because they're going to file the patents for what you invented. And so you are eventually going to have to deal with them, but they're also the closest to you. And so we worked with a Jennifer McCuller, who is the, um, she's our tech transfer manager um, that was assigned to us. Um, and uh, so she helped a lot and they set you up with, uh, you know, advisors and they have all these programs for, um, you know, people who help you and kind of get you started and direct you where you need to go next and classes to take and stuff like that. But, you know, this take, you know, starting a company always takes a certain amount of gumption and belief. And what was your... Um first year goal? Did you think, you know, if I could get through the first year, if I could do this, I I think I'm doing okay. You know, I didn't have metrics like that set for me because it was completely unknown to me what happens next. So we really didn't have goals. We just were like, we're going to do the right thing. We're going to put one foot ahead of the other and we will figure out what needs to happen along the way. Um, And so, yeah, so I didn't have like a specific goal because I didn't know what that goal should be. I'm like, we're just going forward. Well, but you're quitting your job, right? So did you raise some money? So, so when I, so we did, that was part of it. Right. So, I mean, I guess I could say the goal was really in the very, very beginning was just to learn, to try to understand the process and what does one even do, you know, like, how do you start completely? Because we had no business experience. And at that point, so I um, I teamed up with my friend, Sean Sullivan, who's my co-founder. And uh, he used to, he worked at uh, Microsoft for a long time. And he was he's the software. He's like the software guy. He's our CTO now. And I'm, uh, so I, I, I'm mostly, you know, my experience primarily is on kind of like biology and wet lab. And he's a software guy. And so we, you know, we, we sort of muddled through and kind of uh, started building it up. Uh, he quit Microsoft. I um, kind of had a little bit of a partial employment left with UW for, for a while. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and so I didn't rip the Band-Aid off immediately. I kind of waded into it over time. There, but, there was a safety net. There was a little bit of a safety net, right. So, uh, and but it was also useful because it's useful to have a little bit of a um, kind of umbilical cord back to the university because, you know, you get... Um, there were just there's just access you have to things that might be useful you know you you can like go into buildings you can like you could you you can sort of uh you, like you can't do company stuff in academic labs but you can like talk to people you can go to like the biochem store you can like you know do certain things so it, it's helpful for a number of reasons to still be associated with the university um you know and then we went into the university incubator the biotech incubator um at fluke hall which i think is called what is it called like uh i think it's called fluke labs or something they, they renamed it like a million times since yeah. i was there uh, <laughs> but so yeah so then we started like a little lab um, back in the incubator and there was just the two of us and we got this little closet. There was, we, they were touring the lab and the lab was like open, you know, like a open space, like a giant open space, lots of benches. You kind of like pick one and you, you rent it or rent half of it. But there was this closet that I saw and the closet had like a lab bench in it. that was big enough. It was a closet, but it was big enough to have a bench. And I was like, I want that closet because at a door <laughs> and so if you have I, I was like calling customers and stuff i'm on the phone all the time um having a door is like super helpful relative to being in a wide open space and so they were like they like let me have this they let me rent this closet and we bought we went to um uw surplus we pulled a desk like a, one of those ancient metal like desks with like the metal top they're super heavy mm-hmm. and we dragged it back to the incubator we put it on bricks so that it was high enough like a lab bench <laughs> so we had like a lab so it was two guys uh you know we we sort of strapped it with our own money yeah this um, helps you save yeah. a little money in the early well, days while you're figuring out what you're gonna really yeah. do bought a bunch of ebay science equipment stock the lab that way and uh and that's how we started 
Now, what was the original product that you came up with? Was it a, a kit for the sample it, prep it as well as the software? We or? were doing it for people. We were basically a service. So we basically, it's like what I would do for my collaborators back in the academic lab. But, you know, like like folks who come to us now, like, I want to I wanna get this genome assembled with your special technology. So they would send us samples. They would send us some plant leaves or whatever, blood from some animal or whatever. And then we would process it, sequence it, and do the analysis, and we'd return the kind of the finished genome. Uh -huh. We still do a lot of that today. But obviously, it was just a couple guys, so you're limited in the amount of throughput you right. can handle. Right. That's right. It was limited, but also, you know, uh, it was... You didn't need a lot of money when you were just two guys. <laughs> and it also did it also give you confidence, like confirm that you know you got enough orders here, enough interest that uh, yeah, you, I mean you're you doing know, something we, useful. Sure, we bootstrapped the company, right? Like we've never done a priced round, we've never done like a VC round to date. So we we bootstrapped the company off of that. This is seven years later because we were profitable. Yeah, even now, yeah. So we were profitable. We uh, we were very low in like outside investment. You know, most of everything comes from the fact that we built this like service platform, and then we used that to build um, to build like some products that were selling these kits. You know, and so so we basically kind of we we, we sort of we we build things and we make revenue and then we jump to the next thing we build another thing make some revenue so we've grown primarily off of revenue and grants um and without so much investment money so uh, um when did you start shipping out your own kits and and kind of get you know into this you know cloud software based um analysis I mean, what most people today would consider like a more scalable and sophisticated operation yeah. when did well, that happen yeah uh i think we launched the kits about a year later something along those lines i don't remember for sure but yeah something like that and then we launched a couple of others you know that we developed kits that were spe special for plants special for animals different sample types then i think another year or two later we launched our microbiome uh kits and services and so uh, things were always kind of like building kind of incrementally so we'd like one thing there'll be some software to go with it so again that's that's sort of i think another thing that's a little bit different about bootstrap businesses is that you, you kind of you don't like sort of like hold and build one big thing and then you do a giant launch you kind of just like you're like you kind of like stepping up little steps or up and you know sort of constantly yeah. iterating mm -hmm. and so you had um your own custom reagents in these kits it's not that our reagents were custom we didn't have any like special secret chemicals or anything but okay. the process and the technology of how to do it was just very esoteric and just hard it was you know imagine like a like a it's like alchemy almost right <laughs> like brewing this potion for a week you know this super special way so it was really the labor and the know-how that we were selling at that point it, it wasn't so much like there was a secret chemical involved Okay, so but you, you've got a kit, and now you can send it out via UPS or, right. or whatever to anybody in the world. Right. They don't have to send their precious samples to you in right. Seattle, who they may not even know. They can do it on their own with their own instrument and technician there, um, and then upload the the assembly yep, upload that the that they get mm -hmm. into a cloud server, right? Managed by AWS, like so many others. Um, how many people? Are doing this today how many customers oh, you have man. i mean hundreds i don't remember how many hundreds we i know we serve i mean we serve people in about um over 20 countries now we do things in like like all over the world and in part is because because yeah because you know it, it, it the world is like that nowadays it's much more globalized and also because of the flexibility that yeah sometimes people can send us samples sometimes we send them kits to process themselves and so we have a pretty wide reach how many employees do you have now we're getting we're uh, we're in the middle of hiring right now so it'll change but we're we're roughly we're somewhere between sort of 27 and 30 so something along those lines so and and you do have a variety of different products mm -hmm. um, for, you know, cancer or de novo assembly. What are a couple of the ones that um, are most popular at sure, the moment? Sure. So, so the, the sort of the key of what we do is we have this technology that um, is kind of, um, you know, sort of like a general, what you might, might call a generally enabling technology. It's, it sort of has, it's a hammer that hits many nails and we're focusing on, we've developed a number of different applications all kind of off of this tech. And um, 
our major ones are, you know, assembling genomes for things like what I was telling you about. But that was the first one. But that we don't think that's the biggest. Right now, the biggest thing is in the microbiome space, with virus discovery space. And then we also have a, a, an, an oncology application, a cancer application. Mm-hmm. Tell me about this uh, microbiome application. Yeah, sure. Um, absolutely. So, so when you think about um, when you think about yourself as a person, like I, we, we think of ourselves as human, right? But as you know, uh, like most of the cells in your body are not human cells, right? Most of you is microbes. You're just you and a, I are just yeah, a couple of communities right? talking just, to each other. <laughs> we're just walking scaffolds for microbes, right? <laughs> and uh, and it's not just us, right? Like like you scoop a little tiny scoop of soil outside and it has more microbes in it than all the humans who have ever lived right um and 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 so that's something that's present all over it's part of our lives that always has been we just never knew how to deal with it and then beyond that you know the the most by far the most abundant member of of life is viruses phages phages are bacteriophages are viruses that infect bacteria right so there's viruses that infect people there's viruses that infect plants there's viruses that infect bugs there's viruses that infect bacteria and the bacteria viruses are like I mean, just just phages in general, they're estimated to be something like 10 to the 31th power of them on Earth. That means that uh, if that number is true, that means there's roughly one trillion phages for every grain of sand on Earth. So it's just like these incomprehensible numbers, right? Yeah. And so they do everything. And, uh, And they're also one of the most understudied, like, most difficult to understand parts of our uh, sort of you know universe as well um, and and the reason is that a bacteriophage lives inside of a bacterium you can't like grow it on a petri dish you have to grow the bacteria and then you have to find the phage and try to figure out that it, which ones infect whom right and so what that means is because most bacteria in the environment have not been cultured right like either quote unquote unculturable or we haven't yet figured out how to culture them uh, it's super hard to get these phages, right? So there's a bazillion different phages out there, and they're infecting all these bacteria, and God knows why. Um, and we have no idea who they are. Like, we have no idea who they're infecting or their hosts. And what our technology, um, in the microbiome space in general, the cool thing about our tech, what it does that's very unique is, remember what I said, it tells you which pieces of DNA are next to each other, right? That's what our technology does. It says this sequence and this sequence are physically close together in three dimensions. And what that means is if you look at a microbial sample, like let's say you have a, uh, a, you know, a piece of soil or something, a bunch of bacteria like living together. If you were to just extract DNA from that sample and sequence it, that's like, you know, back to our jigsaw puzzle analogy. That's like taking, you know, a thousand jigsaw puzzles, dumping all the pieces together and like mixing them up. You now don't even know which piece came from which puzzle. And it's like that with DNA sequences as well. So you take a thousand bacteria, you sequence them all together, uh, you get sequence, and you go, well, I don't even know which ones came from which bacteria, <laughs> right? And if there's a virus somewhere in there, you'll never figure out who it's been infecting, right? Because you purified DNA and you kind of broke everything up and it's all got mixed, right? But our technology, it tells you which sequences are touching each other inside the cells. So what it does is it kind of traps these connections between DNA molecules before the cells are broken. And so then you're later able to take that mess of 100 jigsaw puzzles and say, I can tell which pieces started out inside the same box. So what you... What many researchers would like to know if they take that sample is, can you give me an accurate representation of the diversity of microbial strains in there? Like if there's a thousand, yeah. just to pick a number, mm-hmm. can you give me the thousand sequences that, that, that are living, you know, right. that are coexisting in exactly. that sample? So now I can see yep. with a little more context. Right. Can you give me a genome for each of those thousand species, right? Mm-hmm. Not just say like, okay, there's some sequences, there's some genes, they're floating around, they're doing some stuff, but actually just be like, okay, this is bacteria A, that's its genome right here. These are all the genes that are belong to bacteria A. And this is a virus that infects bacteria A. And here's bacteria B. Bacteria B has this genome, it has these other genes, right? Stuff like that. And so, and so, um, and so this is called metagenome deconvolution, where you have a metagenome is when you're sequencing lots of things at once and it's all mixed up. Um, and so being able to take a metagenome and separate out all the genomes that are in it 
into separate ones that allows you to discover right? like you like discovered a new organism right? and yeah. and coming back to and, the instruments the instruments are quite capable of doing this on the front end because you know the bacterial genomes and viral genomes by and large they're not as big and long and complex as right. plants so and it's fast and cheap enough to like run all these samples in parallel right. you can get the raw dna yeah. information but then you need to exactly. like assemble it exactly. properly and put it yeah. in its context that's what you guys the do. sequencing companies of the day have made it very easy and relatively inexpensive to generate the data. So just sequencing stuff is not, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, Illumina, PacBio, Nanopore, you know, these companies have done a really great job in making sequencing kind of available. Um, but just having reads is just like that, you know, that book example or whatever. You're like, you just, you have data, but the data itself, you got to do something with it. So like, let's say I have a bacteria um, that is harmful in some way. And I would like to use a phage to kill it, right? I need to know which phage infects that bacteria, <laughs> right? For example, right? And so I, if I just have, so if I just took a microbial sample and I sequenced it, um, just the sequence itself wouldn't tell you that information, right? You have to figure out the genome of the bacteria and you have to figure out the genome of the virus. You have to figure out that that virus was infecting that bacteria, right? And that's what our technology does. So it's, what it does is it simultaneously takes your all those jigsaw puzzles that got mixed together and it separates them out and then and 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 sort of it, it sort of assembles each each sort of uh, jigsaw puzzle separately. And so the the real, the non-metaphorical version of that is it separates parts, all the genomes of the different bacteria that are in the sample. So you can discover new ones. Like that's, that's actually one of the, one of the things that this technology does the best is discover new life that nobody's, nobody's discovered before by assembling these genomes. And it can tell you which viruses are infecting whom. And so, uh, and it also does it not just with viruses, it does the same thing with antibiotic resistance genes. So antibiotic resistance, as you know, is like this huge problem in, in health. Um, and it, part of the reason why it's so prevalent is because genes for antibiotic resistance jump from one organism to the next. And so they can spread like wildfire. Right? The You'll bugs that can resist are best to antibiotics right but they also have the ability to share resistance with their buddies and so suddenly everybody's resistant right or or one bacterium will pick up lots of different resistance genes and suddenly it's resistant to like every drug <laughs> and these bad bugs they exist in a community of other microbes right. many of which are perfectly good and yeah. they, they live in our guts and on our skins and we don't want to like kill them yeah. all <laughs> and you don't know which ones are good which ones are bad you don't know how they're and even the concept of good and bad may not apply like they're just doing their thing um right and so but but you know right now the way that normal microbiome sequencing technology works is you just get these these mixed community like you just you just get this data dumps of this alphabet soup of sequence and you're trying to divine what's going on inside these samples and what our tech does is it completes those jigsaw puzzles it takes that alphabet soup of sequence data and separates it all apart and tells you like here's the actual genomes of the different bacteria that are in there a lot of them you've never sequenced before we've never seen them before but here's the genome of it um, what are the viruses that are inside of the sample. Uh, who are they infecting? Which right? Which bacteria are infected by which viruses? Um, which vi which bacteria have which antibiotic resistance genes? Because one bacterium might have none, and another bacteria might have a bunch, or they all have one, you know, or something along those lines. And so, trying to understand which bacteria carry which resistance genes, trying to understand which viruses are there and which ones infect which bacteria, and just even understanding what are the organisms that are inside of all these samples, even when you've never sequenced one before and they're brand new, our technology kind of enables you to do that all at the same time. This sounds like a uh, wide open field for a lot of basic research. Like there's a lot of basic understanding, basic yeah. questions. Yeah. There are basic questions. There are applied questions. There are healthcare questions. And so it's all, all over the place. And that's part of why, you know, that's why I left an academic career to develop this technology, because I said, this is such a huge opportunity to really impact humanity. Not, I mean, you know, not to be like too startup-y about it, but I really felt like this is a huge hole in the microbial space that our technology solves very kind of elegantly and we can make a massive difference and I can make a much bigger difference if I commercialize this um, than if I, you know, like followed, like got my own lab and started doing research because then you're limited for what you can do. Yeah. 
So there's so much to learn. Like we're at the like beginning of the frontier here in the microbiome, really. Um, and so where do you start? Like how, how do you like position yourself to be like maximally useful for mm-hmm. the academic community, for the in- industrial, sure. for government researchers? Like, um, yeah. well, I mean, the field is you know. It's pretty big. There are a lot of people studying these problems out there. So this is a tool that helps them. Just like, you know, when I said the Driscoll's people came to us and they were like, we're trying to assemble these genomes. Um, we just need the technology to do it. It's the same kind of thing there. There's many labs we work with and they need the tools to do the analysis and then they do the biological discovery after that. So, so we provide the technology that they need to kind of elevate their research and what they're doing. And then you know, similarly with kind of the clinical um, the folks that we work with, again, the the final aim may not be a basic research project. It may be a phage therapy, right? So, so right now this is a, a field. This has actually been around for like a century almost, but it's kind of been for a long time ignored by uh, by sort of the the clinical community. And that is the fact that you can use. I mean, phages they kill bacteria. That's what they do. They're bacterial pathogens, right? They're predators for bacteria. And so you can use them potentially as antibiotics. And it's been done since like World War One. Well, this basic right? field of inquiry is what gave rise to CRISPR, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, right. So bacteria defend against viruses and CRISPR is one such defense. Right. And so for sure. And so, but, you know, using viruses to combat harmful bacteria is something that is being done more, you know, it's something that's being worked on very heavily in the space right now, because again, we're kind of losing this battle against antibiotic resistance and using phages, using viruses to kill bacteria may be a way to overcome that, right? And These could be surgical strikes against the bad exactly. bugs. You just go right after the bad one and you don't have to kill out, you don't, you're not nuking your entire community. You can just take a phage that normally infects bacteria X and you, you know, you can use it to kill bacteria X. Nature's evolved that ability for but, billions yeah. of years and we, we just haven't really harnessed it much exactly. in the exactly. pharmaceutical and it's because industry. it's because it's just it's a difficult field i mean you know technology as technology evolves we open up sort of new abilities new things we can do and that's kind of where we are right we're providing this new tech that allows this like large-scale discovery of phage host biology and things like that now you just announced something with a partnership with gates foundation yeah. and uh, national institute for allergy and infectious disease uh Five million or so dollars to create a repository. So, what what are you trying to do there? Sure, for, absolutely. So, you know, what the we basically through the application of our technology have in the process of doing what we do have developed the world's largest. We already have the world's largest repository of phage host interaction data. So we have because you know we we sort of we collect these uh, interactions between viruses and their hosts. And the idea with with these two projects, and we've been discussing them for quite a while, is if we just go global and let's generate an enormous amount of data on which viruses infect which hosts and create imagine these huge libraries of virus genomes, phage genomes, not like not necessarily viruses, not like COVID type viruses, but the viruses that go after bacteria. Let's say we have a giant library of virus genomes, of these phage genomes, and um, and a giant library of bacterial genomes, and we know which ones infect whom, right? Once we have such a repository, we can train an AI to learn the rules of what causes viruses to choose hosts. Like, why does this phage only infect this bacteria and not these others. And once we understand the rules, you can imagine, you can you, you can figure out which phages should be used to kind of go after specific bugs. So it's, it's, it's basically to improve therapeutic development. It's to improve, you know, let's say there's a, let's say there's a bio threat that comes around. You can imagine creating uh, sort of treatments and pre- preventative measures against it um, using phage biology. So it's really, the idea is to generate, you know, we have this really unique tech that solves a problem for the community um, in trying to figure out which viruses infect which hosts, we can do that on large scale. And so the Gates Foundation and NIAID, they've given us funding to basically look into um, look into certain pl- certain um, fields to try to understand what role phages are playing in um, in these specific applications and so that we can take that information and turn it into better therapeutics, better diagnostics, uh, surveillance methods for to prevent the next pandemic, you know, that kind of stuff. You say it's the world's largest repository of its kind. Like, how big is it now and how big do you think it could be? be or really ought to be at its at its best yeah you know it's, it's interesting so what what 
how this kind of came about, what sparked this whole sort of project was I, we went to research. We, we asked the question, like, if we just look in, into the public databases, how many, um, how many phage host connections do we know about? Like, how many, how many phages do we know and, like, who their hosts are? And it turned out that that number was only like a few hundred. Usually it's like between three and 500, which is crazy considering the numbers I said before, like 10 to the 31st power. Like, like there's so many, there's these, these like galactic numbers of viruses out there and bacteria and, you know, the, like the ocean is basically virus soup, right? Like um, every day, 80% of all life in the ocean gets killed by viruses and then is replenished again. And so viruses actually play a role in um, in the global carbon cycle because all the back, look, all the algae and the, they absorb the CO2 from the air, right? This bacteria, and then viruses kill them and they fall to the bottom of the ocean and turn into coral and whatnot. So basically like, there's viruses are so, like phages are so prevalent and so important that they actually control like the atmospheric carbon and the um, amount of our actual knowledge of these like interactions is right? like it's <laughs> right. almost literally less exactly. than one drop exactly. in the ocean exactly and there's a lot of really cool research going on people are sequencing tons of viral genomes from water from thousands and thousands but they don't know who they're infecting because the only way you would know that is you would culture the bacteria and you infect it with the virus and our technology doesn't require that. And so sometimes we get like 300 from like one sample. Um, and so so our, you know, we have tens of, I don't know how many for sure right now, but we have orders of magnitude more of these connections in our current database, even before starting this Gates project, than, um, than what's out there in all the databases. Uh, and it's not because of any like particularly difficult efforts in our part. It's just, that's what the technology does. It does it very, it's just, does it kind of very quickly and easily? You, you, how quickly? You said you can get three hundred of these interactions from one sample, but like, how long does it take to make one of these assemblies? Uh, you know, it takes it takes a day to process the DNA. It takes another, let's say, two days to sequence it, and then the software takes I don't know, a couple hours. So within a week, you can have this. But but of course, you can run hundreds in parallel too, right? Like that's you can you can do like however many samples you need in parallel. So so in principle, this is massively scalable. And that's what we're trying to do. I basically said, okay, like, what if we had um, a, a stool sample from people just all over the world, like hundreds of people from all over the world in different continents, different diets, different everything. Let's get a giant atlas of what kind of viruses infect our guts, right? Um, and uh, it's, again, we're not going to even touch the like it's not even going to be a fraction of what's actually out there but if we get enough of them we should be able to learn the patterns we should be able to understand what do they look like why do particular ones infect particular bacteria what are like the rules of virus host interaction so that in the future if we see something unknown we can be a little bit more prepared for it right we can be more um we we can design custom therapeutics against the specific conditions and things like that are you getting those kind of samples yourself or your 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 academic customers so so what's cool right now is again we're just starting this out now and maybe this is a little call to action to your listeners but um, um what I, one of the things that i really am in love with was this project is we're really trying to make this kind of like a grassroots thing so we are we are basically talking to a lot of researchers and all over the world different countries and we're saying hey you're a microbiome researcher send me some of your samples we'll process them for you and we'll give you the data and you can do whatever you want with it. You'll have this really unique data set and you can publish it, you can write grants, you can do your thing. We're just piling up the repository. We're making the atlas and we'll mine it later. But so we're collab we're beginning, it's it's essentially we're just just generating this huge spider web of collaborations that we're just um, we're we're hoping to kind of spark a lot of new projects and a lot of new discovery that, with this project, kind of as a you know killing multiple birds with one stone. Instead of just saying, okay, we got this grant, we're gonna generate all this data. Saying, let's have the data actually be useful to people. And so we're kind of giving away, we're processing these samples for people, and we're giving the data to them so that they can then leverage it for whatever it is they're doing. And so kind of doing both things at once. So it's gonna you're be not, a, it's gonna be kind of like a community project. You're you're not trying to hoard the data. And use it for your own drug discovery well, or something like we, that? We probably will, but we're not doing only that. I mean, we are still a company. This is not entirely like a philanthropic effort, oh. but we are building this particular resource. But we're also 
giving the data to the people who are giving us samples. Uh, sort of, they can do what they need to, to do with it. So, so it's a little bit of both. But you're enabling your customers to publish papers yep. in some cases, or um, develop their own products. Um, sure. So discover new stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You're a long way from uh, flu call and you know, the simple <laughs> yeah. desk, well, you know. And uh, but but not that much. I mean, the motivation has always been the same. The motivation has been that this technology can help lots of people, and a lot of those people are scientists, which is you know, which were my people, are my people, right? I was a scientist for 25 years before starting this company, and so. Um, and so, yeah, so so the motivation is still the same, like help the scientific community move it forward, uh, you know, kind of as a, you know, as, as humanity, you can kind of watch, you know, we've evolved like into kind of higher and higher states of better information, right? Like, like one of the things about human development, like as we develop as a society is just the more information we gather, the more inform the more the more we master the information that's out there, the more sort of technologically developed we get, the more uh, the more developed our society gets. Well, you know, life is basically information, right? And uh, and genomics seeks to capture that information. And so, what we have captured, we at Phase have captured this little quirk uh, of a technology that lets us exploit a new, get a little new bit of information and kind of into the milieu of of kind of human knowledge. And that's what we're trying to do. We're basically trying to spread this knowledge around, uh, help people learn new things, discover new things. We believe it's sort of it's good in and of itself beyond even just the applied uh, sort of beyond just the it's kind of the commercial applications of it it's just good to have better information because you discover things and who knows what else you'll come up with higher quality information should lead to uh, higher quality insights right. i mean uh, or at least you know fewer blind alleys or dead ends that you get stuck on yeah so that's kind of why i really like this project it's really cool because we're developing our thing this new repository we, we really think it's going to revolutionize surveillance and diagnostics and all this kind of stuff. Um, but at the same time, we're giving pieces of it to researchers all over the world so that they can do their own things with it too. And so we're kind of recruiting people, we're forming collaborations, that kind of thing. You said in the beginning you didn't really have a concrete goal for the company. Do, do you now? Where do you see this thing going in 10 years? You know, my goals have changed, right? When, you know, when you're a little bootstrap startup, sometimes a lot of times you think about, you know, if I, all I want to do is sell this company and make money and go and whatever. But but as we've grown, you know, we're starting to reach a lot of these like lofty goals. So that little carrot kind of keeps moving further and further away. Like, like we really think that with this technology, you know, being one of them, we can really make, we can, we really think we can change the world, at least our part of the world. Like, I think we can make a real significant difference beyond just kind of like making one commercial product, but actually move kind of uh, humanity forward a little bit. Well, Coming back to the beginning of this conversation, you know, you came here to the United States and um, found a way forward to uh, to pursue what I think a lot of people would consider classical American dream. Um, you know, make a better life for future generations, um, you know, um, free to follow a path that didn't even exist yeah. when you moved here. I mean, the field of genomics didn't even exist. Yeah. <laughs> and it, no, it's, it, it's, it's true. And I think you're right. I mean, I think it is sort of a very, a story of like, you know, like I'm always very kind of um, just like, you know, like grateful and flattered this thing happened, you know, cause it is true. Like it's, it's a very unique place, you know, being able to do this and uh, not everywhere can you kind of fantasize about these scientific things and then so and then actually make them happen right the the environment here in seattle uh has played a huge role around around it but also you know the federal government the u.s government um you know scientists around the world like just the community aspect of of how the scientific community works all of that is really i think it's you know it's why scientists really usually like really love their field is because you know you really are part of a bigger thing and uh and the ability to create new technology and actually use it to benefit other people is like amazing like i feel it's like it's like the best thing that a scientist can do right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well if there's any kids out there in the ukraine or other parts of the world who <laughs> might be listening to this um i hope they find some inspiration in uh, in what you do and uh and see how that whole scientific community is international and connected and how we can all lift each other up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ivan Liachko, thanks so much for joining me today on The Long Run. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. 
Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode. <laughs>